The Laura Murphy Show, Episode 73. Welcome to The Laura Murphy Show, the podcast that analyzes financial markets from the perspective of Austrian economics and Nelson Nash's infinite banking concept. Listen and learn as your hosts, Robert Murphy and Carlos Lara, explain how you can be part of building the 10%. Hey everybody, Bob Murphy here. Carlos is not with me right now because all I'm doing is introducing an interview that I conducted on my own podcast, The Bob Murphy Show. So the guest I had there recently was Dr. Keith Smith, who is the founder of the Surgery Center of Oklahoma and the Free Market Medical Association. And as you'll see very soon here as we get into the interview, Dr. Smith's message when it comes to healthcare and health insurance is remarkably similar to what the Nelson Nash Institute's message is regarding, let's say, the financial sector or your financial planning. And in particular, Dr. Smith was fine when I said, so what you're basically doing is showing people how they can secede from the current system where employers provide health insurance and all medical care or virtually all medical care is funneled through third-party payers. And what you, Dr. Smith, are showing is how people can take control of their own medical care and make medicine like a business again, where you're the patient, but you're also the customer and you're paying out of pocket for things. And that's why the prices are real to you. You don't just look at a, an invoice from a hospital or a doctor and just think, oh, that's not real money anymore because somebody else is paying most of it. So that's the kind of stuff we talk about. And like I say, for fans of the Lara Murphy show, I thought you would enjoy hearing my discussion with Dr. Keith Smith. Before we get into that, though, one announcement, the Nelson Nash Institute on August 17th, 2019, so that's a Saturday, is going to be putting out a seminar, an IBC seminar for the general public. And this is going to be held in Atlanta, Georgia. So again, for those of you in the Atlanta area, or for those who want to fly to the Atlanta area, on August 17th, 2019, Carlos and I, along with David Stearns, the board of the Nelson Nash Institute, are going to be putting on an IBC seminar for the general public. So we will share more details as we nail them down. But for right now, for sure, we know it's going to be August 17th, 2019 in the Atlanta area. Hope to see you there. And now without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Keith Smith. Well, Dr. Keith Smith, it's a pleasure to have you here on the Bob Murphy Show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be with you. So as I told the listeners in the uh, introduction here to this episode, I'm going to spend some time over the you know coming months here interviewing people affiliated with what is called the, the Free Market Medical Association. So that's probably a logical place to start. Can you explain to the listeners what, what is the Free Market Medical Association? Yes, the Free Market Medical Association is a, a group that was founded by my friend Jake Hempton and I with the, with the idea that we could, we could promote the principles of the free market as we understand them to help others in the medical industrial complex mend their ways and begin dealing in market exchanges the way everybody else does. So the organization is, uh, unlike a lot of medical organizations, not so full of doctors. It's full of people in the industry 
uh, real insiders that have watched this sausage made for a long time, and they know what's wrong, uh, and they know they know who's responsible, uh, and many of them know how to fix it, and and many of them represent huge buying power, uh, just an unbelievable consumer power that uh, ultimately we think will change things. So when Jay Kempton and I met, he liked that I would tell him how much a surgery costs, and I liked that he would pay me on behalf of his self-funded clients uh, so that it felt like a cash transaction. But we decided rather than keep each other a secret, we would, we would help uh, others and teach others really to uh, act and coordinate buying and selling of medical services in the same way Jay and I uh, had experienced work so well. So the Free Market Medical Association is a large association now with uh, 37 state chapters. Uh, there are a lot of physicians and facilities that are, to, to some degree, um, exhibiting price transparency, either posting all their prices online for everyone to see, like we do at Surgery Center of Oklahoma, or or some degree of that where you can just call them and ask them, you know, how much is a hernia repair? How much is an MRI? And they'll tell you over the phone. So that, that, that's the nature of the organization. Yeah. And this is something, if you could just take a minute on, on this point, I was going to, I had jotted down notes before talking to you, Keith, here about, you know, what should we cover? And this is something that it happened to me recently. Um, I mentioned this when I gave the the talk, you know, at your, at your recent um, conference where I had to, I just was interested in a, in a routine blood test. I was curious about something and I called, you know, when I mentioned to my doc, I called up my doctor and, and had him schedule it. And then when the, when his person got back to me and said, okay, we've scheduled it for such and such. And I'm at Texas, I was at Texas Tech University at the time. And, you know, so I was going to their facilities and the person said on the phone said to me something like, you know, we're not certain that your insurance is going to cover it. So before you go do this, you might want to first check and see how much it is and blah, blah. And I had to call three separate people and nobody could tell me how much this test was going to cost. <laughs> and they were all, you know, they were all perfectly pleasant. They weren't being evasive. They just truly didn't know. And not right. only didn't they know, they didn't even know how it could be known. And finally, the last lady, you know, the one who was sort of the last line in the in the chain there said something like, well, a lot of these go through and I see the, you know, the bills we send to the insurance. I don't think it's going to be that much. And I said, uh -huh, okay. And then she said, I mean, yeah, it wouldn't be more than, you know, $500, which, you know, that's kind of a, <laughs> it, yeah. it turned out it was like 200 or something and the insurance covered a bunch of it. So it wasn't a big deal, but my point was, you know, as an economist, like looking at that, can you imagine if any other market was like, like if you had to go buy a new car and you called a bunch of the car dealerships and they literally wouldn't tell you the price until after you purchased the car. I mean, clearly that would not work. And for sure, we wouldn't call that a free market in cars. And yet people have this idea that the, the reason there's problems in, in U.S. medicine is because we have too much capitalism involved. Yeah, and, and to some extent, medical procedures and tests and the delivery of medical services cannot be commoditized. There is a small amount of uncertainty that is real. And so there are two groups of people that are answering the phone when you call and ask how much. Some of them don't know. Some of them don't know what they can get away with. So I don't know how much it is. Might be an honest answer, but more than likely the answer is, well, I know, but I'm not going to tell you because I don't know how much I can get away with here. I need to. I need to ensure that I maximize uh, my revenue 
uh, rather than reveal uh, my fair pricing and be judged by the market. So while there is there is an uncertainty that's attached to medical service delivery, it's not necessarily uh, associated with the purchase of uh, of all commoditized goods. It is almost there's not nearly as much uncertainty as people would like to claim there is. And that's what they hide behind when they say, I don't know. Because what they really mean is, I don't know how much money I can get out of you. You know, show me your card. You know, show me what insurance plan you're with. And so I can see how much revenue I can extract from this exchange. Oh, that's really interesting. Even though, as you're saying that now, it's obvious that really hadn't occurred to me. I just figured it was a, you know, a standard policy because, yeah, like you say, if, because I had heard a similar thing when I was doing research um, for my book, The Primal Prescription with Doug McGuff. I was doing research for that and came across, there was some n- news anchor somewhere, like it was, I think she's like in Philadelphia or something, and she was pregnant and as part of just a story for, you know, healthcare costs in America, that kind of thing. She had called around to hospitals and nobody would give her a straight, I think one place gave her an answer. And even then they were saying, hey, this is not a quote, you know, other things could go wrong. And, and there you <laughs> Yeah, and so there, the official reasoning was, well, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen, and we don't want to give you one number, and then if it's more expensive, you come later and you know say we lied to you. But but yeah, what you're, I, I see what you're saying. The answer is because there is no set price; it depends who the buyer is. That then that the price changes. That's right. Yeah, and you know how much should give you an answer ninety plus percent of the time for for those conditions and procedures to which there is attached a certain amount of uncertainty. My God, that's what we have insurance for. Uh, the problem is these these companies that are called insurance companies are not in the insurance business. They're in the business of skimming uh, the transaction, extracting a toll uh, every time anyone receives, just like you did, a blood test. And that's not what insurance is for. It's not for an oil change or a tune-up or new tires. Uh, and, and in the medical industry, that's what's obtained. Yeah, that's a great point. I do want to come back to that. But before we lose the train here, so the Free Market Medical Association, even though it it might sound like, oh, it's this sort of uh, wonkish institute that just pushed out periodical white papers on, you know, (laughs) how uh, you know drug price or whatever, how the FDA should be reformed. It's actually it's 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 a practical, real world thing for right now, even given the legal and regulatory constraints how real world physicians and other medical professionals can try to like move away from this third party payment system and just get back to like a, you know, the, the medicine is a business. That That's correct. And, and the free market medical association was named uh, with, with a lot of thought. Uh, I, my study of the free market has uh, very early on uh, ended up right in the Austrian camp. And I'm, I'm no economist. Uh, I would never enter into a serious discussion about economics, but I am a student. And all of the Austrian writings that I've read make sense. And, and so when we, when we talked about naming this association, we wanted to call it, you know, something that was accurate, that really did represent uh, what we believed. Uh, the, the free market medical association made sense. And, and in my mind, I consider it almost a medical service extension uh, and manifestation of the Austrian concepts that I've come across. Uh, and and one, of the, one of the ways that has kept us focused is unlike a lot of medical organizations, 
the idea that the government can be involved as a helper in any way uh, is seen as ludicrous. Uh, the only the only way we could see the government involved in promoting free markets would be for them to rescind every single thing they've ever done that's disturbed the market. So we we really do consider ourselves uh, consistent with uh, I think the teachings of uh, the disciples of the Austrian school and and if in some way we are not I would welcome uh, anyone's uh, critique. Uh, to the extent that we are not, because that's certainly our intention. Well, great. So we just could pursue this a little bit here. So what you, th- those of, of the, the professionals in your network and certainly what you're doing, and I talked to some other people um, when I was at your, your conference recently who are doing this. L- let me give the, 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 the layman's version and then you can refine it. But part of the reason, quote, healthcare costs are so astronomical is there's these third party payers and the, you know, the hospital or the doctor's office knows they're going to throw out some number. A bunch of the patients aren't ever going to pay a cent. Some of the other ones are going to pay, but it's going to get discounted through various measures of you know, arguing with the insurance companies or with Medicare. And then even then it's only going to be paid months down the road. And you got to have a whole support staff who don't specialize in taking blood pressure, but they just specialize in harassing people to pay or dealing with the insurance company. So if you are as a practice, as a doctor, move away from that and you just have clients who just pay you cash, that gets rid of a lot of overhead and so you can afford to pass savings on to them. Is that the, is that the premise? That's correct. From the physician's uh, viewpoint, that is exactly right. And uh, the manifestation of that approach now is referred to by many as the direct primary care movement where, where patients and physicians just deal directly, and there, there are no intermediaries whatsoever in that exchange. From the institutional side, um, like a hospital or a surgery center or an imaging facility, the reason the, the fees and the prices and the charges are so high is partly due to the burden uh, that is imposed on them, uh, the regulatory burden. Uh, but, but keep in mind this regulatory burden is uh, the work product of the large hospital systems who who are big enough to deal with this regulatory burden. And they know that their smaller competitors are not able to deal with this regulatory burden. So it it makes the smaller players easier to to take over. There are other more complicated reasons uh, that the hospital charges are so high. Uh, One is uh, that the hospital's issue these gigantic bills, knowing they're not going to collect that amount uh, and knowing that some discount uh, will be applied by one of the insurance carriers. But then they write off the amount of that giant charge they did not collect as a loss. And it turns out these big hospital systems need all of the red ink that they can possibly find to maintain the fiction of their not-for-profit status. Now, most of these big hospital systems just don't pay tax. And when people see not-for-profit, you know, they think altruism and all these wonderful things. All it just means is they don't pay tax. They don't pay property tax. They don't pay any tax. And, and to shelter the uh, huge profits uh, that, they, that they generate, they need all of this red ink uh, to, to maintain this fiction. The, the other thing that happens is these losses the hospitals claim to have uh, incurred they are all put in a bucket and shipped off to D.C. and, and come back 
uh, is a kickback in the form of what's referred to as a disproportionate share hospital payment. So Uncle Sam pads uh, Medicare payments to hospitals that claim these huge losses. So there's a lot of shell game and uh, money changing going on. Uh, and the reason these charges are so high many times, it's all behind the curtain and hard for people to see. Okay. Well, yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, so I guess, why don't we adopt it from the perspective here of a, of, of a, of a typical patient? I, I guess they, you would be advising them that, Hey, you know, you might want to seriously consider going and finding, like, would they go to, to your website and try to find a doctor near them who participates in your, in your organization? Is that how it would work? Yes, they could, they could go to surgery center of Oklahoma's website. They could, uh, they could, if they live in this area or anywhere nearby, or they could go to the Free Market Medical Association's website. There's a tab there called Shop Health, and that will help them find a cash price at a, at a facility probably near them um, if they want to buy uh, their care instead of funnel it through the mass. The other thing I recommend people do is uh, consider uh, contracting with a direct primary care doctor. And that those positions can most easily be found at a website called dpcfrontier.com. And that shows um, a map of the United States. And there is a dot, you know, wherever there is one of these practices. And the map is almost completely covered now with dots. Physicians that are uh, fed up with, with the current system and know how broken it is and have been burnt out or victimized by it. And they are they're walking away and they're they're opening these practices, these direct primary care practices. And and the reason I encourage people to consider that, uh, the price for which I think is about $70 a month average in the United States, that'll give you unlimited access to a primary care doctor. The real value though is if you go see an independent physician under one of these arrangement umbrellas, they are not under the gun to refer you up the sausage tube uh, to their hospital employer uh, to inflict very expensive uh, and possibly damaging testing on you in order to maintain uh, their viability as an employee of a big hospital system. So I, I encourage uh, anyone who feels like uh, they may have any sort of primary care needs whatsoever to fire whoever their doctor is and go uh, seek out one of these direct primary care doctors who will not only be their medical advocate, but will also be their financial advocate uh, and their quality advocate. Make sure that you know, the surgeon they refer you to, for instance, is the surgeon that would remove their gallbladder or take their, you know, repair their hernia. So the primary care part of this is, uh, is a very important and very disruptive um, component of this free market movement. So People can search and find uh, direct primary care doctors very easily. They can search surgical and imaging procedures very easily on the FMMA website. Um, and then just keep, keep your eyes open. And I, I recommend people go to their local hospital and say, you know, I'm, I, you know, carry, you know, a price list from the FMMA health tab or the surgery center of Oklahoma, carry that price list in and say, I need a hernia repair. And, I'd really like for you to match this so I don't have to fly to Oklahoma. Uh, and, and if you won't, I will. And 
we've we received numerous emails from patients that will say, you, know, you saved us tens of thousands of dollars by allowing us to to leverage a better deal in our local market. And, and you know, we saved all this money and you didn't even perform the surgery. So the market is is vibrant. It's alive and well. I think the big hospital players uh, do not want to admit how vibrant uh, this market is. I, I think you saw it. You saw it at the meeting in Dallas. Oh, it, it definitely. Yeah. So um, again, I, I mentioned this in the introduction folks, but yeah, I was one of the speakers at, um, at an FM MA event recently here in Dallas. The, the keynote speaker was, was Dr. Ron Paul. And yeah, I, w- I was really blown away, Keith, by th- the, the turnout you had and, and to realize that like, this is this is a real thing. This isn't just a bunch of, uh, you know, academics sitting around dreaming about imagine what, uh, you know, imagine what a, what a better society with, you know, a smaller government would look like. I mean, these, these were people in the real world doing, it, and that's why it was so exciting. Um, I don't know if you, if you have any of these numbers at your fingertips, Keith, but, but do you have, for, just for someone who's never heard of this before, just to give them a ballpark frame of reference, like you don't just mean, oh yeah, you might save 10% on your medical expenses. I mean, these are some huge savings that, that are being achieved? Yes. Um, you know, we, we put our prices online at Surgery Center of Oklahoma a little over 10 years ago uh, before there was any demand uh, that we could perceive for, for doing that. And so the only way I really knew how my prices compared was to ask patients who did come see us, you know, did you shop around and what was your next best price? And we had seen some hospital bills through the years that were, you know, anywhere from eight to 12 times what we found we could fairly charge for any given procedure. But over time, those ratios have been borne out where any patient that comes to our facility that travels, uh, you know, to have their surgery at our place, knowing what our price is, will report a anywhere from six to 10 X what I have listed online. And so, this is this is a ninety percent savings, and that's not infrequent. We had a we had a patient from Georgia um, years ago who had heard about our facility, and we had a procedure listed online that his urologist had told him he required, and our price our online price was three thousand six hundred dollars, but he had been quoted at his local hospital forty thousand, and he told his urologist he was coming to Oklahoma City and. The urologist had lost another patient to us for this very same reason. And he said, no, 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 we're going to go talk to the hospital. So they went into the administration and told them what the deal was. And the administrator said, well, we'll, we'll do it for 4000 So, you know, this is a guy that saved whatever that is. I mean, that's that's almost 90% on that one procedure. So, yeah, the, the savings is just it's shocking. And, and people frequently ask us, you know, how do you do this so cheaply? And, and so, you know, turn turn your camera around the other way. And why are they charging so much? And, and it's because they they get all that they can get away with most of the time. So, and I've seen enough of this, you know, to, to know that what you're speaking is correct. If I, I'm trying to, um, to, to get the, the heart of what's driving this, because normally, you know, if, if it were a largely free market, and that's probably the issue here, is that the normal market forces of competition are being uh, crippled by government intervention, and maybe that's what we can try to figure out what's going on here. But normally, you would think, wait a minute, if there's some firm in Oklahoma that's charging $3,600 or $4,000 for this procedure, 
and some other place is charging 40,000. Why are the insurance companies, you know, agreeing to that? Why don't the insurance companies say to that one hospital, what are you kidding me? We know that this procedure really only costs four grand. We're not going to pay you 40,000 for that. So why isn't that, you know, like if in car insurance, if some auto shop was charging 10 times as much to replace your windshield as the guy down the street, you would think that your, you know, the auto insurance companies at the very least would step in and say, that's crazy. We're not paying that. So what is it specifically that's preventing that kind of competition? Why is this hospital getting anybody to pay 40 grand? I guess that's what I'm getting at. Well, in this situation, the uh, the hospital and the insurance carrier are working together, uh, and they you know they scratch each other's backs. So the way it works, uh, the hospital throws out a you know a forty thousand dollar bill. Uh, the insurance company rides in on their white horse and discounts that forty thousand bill to say ten thousand, and then they typically would ride into an employer's office, you know, on this white horse and say, look here, you know, we, we're the big bad insurance company. And thanks to us, you know, we achieved a $30,000 discount. Look at all the money we've saved you. All the while, the employer does not know that what the hospital really was paid was probably 8000 and the insurance company pocketed part of this discount that they falsely achieved. So, so th- it's a situation where the insurance companies are peddling um, and skimming from discounts that they claim that they achieve. The hospitals will tell the insurance companies, you know, this, we will give you pretty reasonable pricing, <clears throat> even though it's multiples of what Surgery Center of Oklahoma charges. Um, and in return, you know, we will give you these gigantic charges that then you can go play with in the discount market. And, and then you must agree then not to contract with our lowest price, lower price competitors. And so when I refer to them as a cartel, that's exactly what it is. Uh, the, the hospitals provide pricing to the big insurance carriers with the understanding that the carriers will not contract with lower price competitors. And then the hospitals or the insurance carriers benefit from this arrangement because the higher the initial charge, the more money they make. So I've been told that it's not uncommon for uh, an insurance exec to actually ask a hospital administrator, can you, can you do a brother a favor and double that charge? Because that maximizes the opportunity uh, that they have to make money off of this discount. With, with all of my prices online, you know, this discount thing is an opportunity foregone. I mean, there is no way. Uh, the, that anybody would get away applying a discount to my fee, which is listed online. Right. I see that. So that's very interesting. So part of it, I guess, is, as you're saying, because that initial sticker price is so high, the average person seeing that just files away as a fact of life. You absolutely need to have health insurance coverage because otherwise, if you had got rushed to the emergency room or, you know, you had something go wrong, you'd be bankrupted. No, no normal person could possibly pay these numbers. You need the, you know, to be in the, in the bosom of this benevolent insurance company and they'll go to bat for me. They'll stand up to those evil hospitals. Right. Cause you know, they're, it's like being part of a union or something. They do. And, and they manufacture a lot of fear. You're exactly right. They manufacture a lot of fear with these gigantic charges. And so there are two, there are two groups of buyers. There are the buyers who actually care what stuff costs. Uh, and then they're, and they have sticker shock. 
And then there's another group of buyers that really don't care what it costs. And, and nobody, nobody even cares what you ask anybody that's had their appendix out or had their tonsils taken out. How much was it? And they'll tell you their copay and deductible. They don't have any idea how much it cost. And frankly, most people don't care uh, beyond what it actually costs them out of pocket. When we, when we put our prices online and everybody else has had the same experience. There's a group of buyers who actually care what it costs. And so they're the only consumers really in the market because they, they have that sticker shock that's absent, absent from much of the market because of this intermediary that's skimming the exchange. So I suppose, I mean, just thinking off the cuff here, like in terms of what is it that, because again, like in a normal, in a genuine free market, you would think even if there were these cozy relationships, competition would eventually break them down. But here it's not an open market. And so like somebody can't just down the street, open up a competing hospital because there's all kinds of, uh, was it like certificate of need or something like that, that the other doctors yes. in the area can just sign, have to sign off on. And of course, there's the FDA and the you know the medical licensing, so there's all kinds of restrictions politically on you know competition in this sector. So I guess is that partly what maintains this crazy relationship? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's still certificate of need laws in I think 30 states or more. There also uh, was a provision in the Unaffordable Care Act uh, that was the last the last item optioned to the American Hospital Association to gain their support for that legislation. And it is a, uh, it's a clause that prevents uh, the construction of a new physician-owned hospital and even the expansion of an existing physician-owned hospital. And the government does what it always does. It, it says, well, you can go ahead if you want. You just can't accept any federal money. So it was very stifling uh, for this legislation to to appear, uh, particularly that part of it. So there's certificate of need. There's the federal prohibition on the construction or expansion of physician-owned facilities. And then the regulatory burden that typically only the largest institutions can endure is very scary and creates a lot of uncertainty for anybody that's contemplating uh, stepping out as an underdog. And the other thing is that if you step in as an underdog, you very likely are not going to be allowed in the club or the network, as the insurance companies call it. So uh, to, to step into this game, knowing that it's not so much that the market is dysfunctional, the market is absent. And uh, you really have to understand who the buyers are with sticker shock and appeal to them. I think the good news is we're beginning to see this good old boy thing breaking down a bit uh, because some some parts of this arrangement have benefited more than others. And starting to see some finger pointing uh, right now where you know, there are all these surprise medical bills and you know, the insurance companies want to blame the hospitals and the hospitals want to blame the insurance companies. And as my dad says, you know, there's some fights where you just sit back and hope for casualties on both sides. And I think there's a little <laughs> bit of that going on. Um, and, and so I think there is a breakdown. And I think also uh, the insurance companies are very aware of the pricing that I have online and many others do too. And that really has become their new benchmark for how they can leverage the big hospital systems. Because at some point, 
I think to your point, at some point it becomes worth it uh, to walk away from the good old boy arrangement and, and for some of these carriers to get actually get back into the insurance business. I'm, I'm actually very optimistic because I think I am seeing uh, the breakdown that you would think that the power of the market would provide. And I think we are witnessing it right now. Well, that's very encouraging. Um, yeah, so yeah, let's go back. You, you made a, a couple of remarks uh, in the beginning of this inter- interview here that I want to follow up on saying how, you know, like with car insurance, the function of insurance is that there's a small probability event that has a large um, financial cost. And that's what insurance is for. So yeah, if in case you get into an accident with your car and, and you need your car to be replaced, then that's what auto insurance is for. It is not for you to fill up your gas tank, to get your oil changed, to get new tires periodically. That's not what insurance is for. And, and if it were, then you know, your your premiums for auto insurance would start rising and, and that sort of thing. Yet with healthcare, it's it's the other way around. With health, with what we call health insurance, it's not like that. And also, too, the fact that it's tied to your employer. And, and I use this line um, at the at the talk I gave at your organization, Keith, where I said, you know, if you if you asked your buddy, hey, do you want to go out on Friday? And he said, oh no, I can't drive. And I said, why not? He said, oh, because I'm I'm in between jobs right now, so I don't have car insurance. Like, nobody talks like that. But yet, plenty of people would say, oh, I'm not getting this elective procedure right now, the health procedure. Because I'm in between jobs and I got to wait till I get health insurance. Like people talk about it, so it's just weird about the you know the the nature of so-called health insurance. And so I, and I I know we were talking before the interview where you made this point, and I we said this too in um in the book Prime Prescription that for some reason in U.S. politics, health care and health insurance have been conflated. Those are totally distinct things. That, that's right. Um, I don't know how many times uh, uh, people have told me, well, you know, I. I can't get my vitamin B12 shots anymore because Medicare won't cover it. I think, well, of course you can get vitamin B12 shots, whether Medicare covers it or not, you just pay for it. And people will say, well, there's, there's not a doctor that's in my insurance network that I like that will take you know, my child's tonsils out. So I guess they can't get their tonsils out. Well, no, you just go buy it. But people are really brainwashed, really. I mean, it's very sheep-like, uh, and the carriers have benefited from this. The big insurance carriers have definitely benefited from this, but but so many people uh, mistake uh, health coverage uh, from health care. Keep in mind, when we put our prices online almost 11 years ago now, the first patients that arrived were Canadians, and they all have coverage. Now, they, they just don't have access to the care so many of them require. The, the most common story was a, a woman uh, with painful or dysfunctional uterine bleeding that needed a hysterectomy, and she was in a three-year waiting line to see a gynecologist and was tired of receiving transfusions. So they would pay the $8,000 that I have listed online, which is surgeon anesthesia, facility pathology, and a one-night stay in our facility. Uh, and they would pay that $8,000 you know, to have their surgery and get their cure. And so there are a lot of people that have coverage. Uh, they just don't, they don't have access uh, to the care that they, that they require. Yeah. I mean, it's such an elementary point, but it's, it's worth emphasizing that, <laughs> you know, just because the government snaps their fingers, ah, now everyone, you know, it's illegal for an insurance carrier to deny coverage to people. 
that doesn't increase the number of doctors or the number of MRI machines. And it's just shocking to me how people just think that, oh yeah, because they passed a law, that means now everyone's going to get the same medical care that Warren Buffett gets. I mean, that's just amazing to me. Yeah, they, they'll just see a different type of rationing. Um, it, and, and the type of rationing that governments do in government uh, healthcare systems uh, tends to be much, uh, much more cruel uh, and, and deadly. And the market, the market is honest about rationing. Uh, there's, there are limited resources, except when the market does it, they're used in the most efficient way. And so more people have access uh, and to better care, I would argue. But yeah, the, the rationing that, that is occurring in the United Kingdom, um, in, uh, in Canada, in many of the places that uh, people you know, say, oh, this is wonderful. You know, this is you know, free health care, you know, universal health care for everyone. All of those countries are making a swing towards the free market uh, because the failure is becoming increasingly uh, intolerable. You know, one thing, one thing I'll add too, whenever I learned my lesson early on, whenever a Canadian came to our facility, uh, you know, here, here they are in Oklahoma City, for God's sake. I mean, the system has failed them. They're paying cash and they come all the way to Oklahoma to have a hysterectomy. I mean, what else, what else do you need to know about the failure of a socialized system? And so I wrongly assumed that, that you know, we would be kindred spirits in my critical remarks about the Canadian healthcare system. And I was very wrong at uh, this. Uh, it's almost, uh, it's almost like nationalism, uh, the pride that many people have the Canadians, I would say in particular in their national healthcare, it's a source of pride that uh, it, it's unbelievable. I, I learned my lesson early on and I'll, I'll never criticize the uh, socialized medicine uh, system that has so betrayed uh, the patients that come to our facility. I won't do that again. Well, that's interesting. So I w- work with um, the Fraser Institute, which is a free market, you know, economics think tank up in Canada there. And and yeah, you're yeah. right. When it when it comes to healthcare issues, yeah, we we have to be really sensitive. Let's say. And and yeah, I was briefed early on that saying, Bob, you got to understand that the average Canadian, they think it's the Wild West in the United States. They think it's like laissez-faire healthcare and people are dying in the streets, you know, because they have appendicitis and they don't have enough money. And, and it's, so one thing is the government at all levels in the U.S. actually spends the same fraction of GDP on healthcare in the U.S. as in Canada. It's just on top of that, there's all the private expenditures, but it's it's not the case that oh yeah the you know the the Canadian government's generous and takes care of healthcare and the U.S. government's stingy. It's that no, the U.S. government spends just as much, and then you got all the private spending on top of it. So I'm just curious for the, those Canadians coming to you, did they just think they were a weird quirk that slipped through the cracks in their system, or like how could they reconcile their faith in their great system with the fact that like you say they're having to leave the country to get something taken care of? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. They think they're a weird, weird quirk. You know, we have this safety net, but every net has holes in it. And I'm just one of those unfortunate people that fell through a hole, but there's all the rest of the net, you know, that is there for me if anything else goes wrong. It's sort of that sort of thinking. Yeah. And I've also just anecdotally, I know a bunch of people in Canada where it's things like, um, like they want to get a hip replacement or things where they can deal with it. It's just, excruciating pain. And so then they're put on a really long waiting list. It's kind of like a triage that they do. And, you know, if you're about to die, maybe they'll deal with you first or something, but yeah. 
Yeah, I tell I tell people that uh, that the one single payer that Canadians can truly rely on is themselves, and many of them have discovered that. Uh, you know, then they travel to the United States and other places to <laughs> to to get their care because it's just not available up there many times. Why don't I circle back here to something? Because again, I want to just I'm sure a lot of the listeners, you know, now all of a sudden they're hopeful that, oh, wow, I knew healthcare was screwed up. But it looks like, you know, there's these these innovators, these these pioneers who are showing a new way. I could see the average person saying something like this, though. So just tell me, Keith, if, if they're missing something, they might say, look, I need to retain my health insurance coverage in case, you know, something really bad happens, some catastrophic incident. So I need to keep the coverage. So since I'm paying those premiums anyway, what do I care? Why don't I just go to a regular doctor since my insurance pays for it? Yeah, and, and there are two ways to look at that. One um, is that most people now have deductibles that are more than the entire amount they would pay in cash if they were to buy their health care directly. So it's very unusual for people to actually meet their deductibles. Most people don't even meet their deductible uh, during the year. And um, we had a large national news a group can spend the day with me two weeks ago, and that's what they were looking for. They said, do you have any patients on this particular Thursday that are traveling in from out of state who have insurance but elect not to use it? And we had four that day. So, you know, these people have either these Obamacare plans or or they have a, you know, a Blue Cross plan with a $5,000 deductible or something like that. And I say, just come on in and leave that in the car. And you know, and our cash price is a fraction of their deductible. And so then they gamble that the rest of the year will be a healthy experience for them and they don't meet their deductible. So there are instances where people actually have insurance where they still should shop around. Uh, Deductibles, as high as they are, uh, were a gift uh, to the big insurance carriers by the folks who wrote the Affordable Care Act. And that, that insulates the carriers from a lot of expense, but it, it created a consumer market. It's very unintended and inadvertent. But you yeah. know, if you've got a $7,000 family deductible, you're, you're a shopper. Right. And also just on that point, that what happened with me. So this was when the Affordable Care Act passed. I was, that was before my tech, you know, when I was at Texas Tech, obviously I was with their coverage, but before that I was self-employed. And so I, you know, was buying it over the counter, my own policy. And I had what was called a catastrophic plan, right? Because I'm pretty healthy. I barely ever have any expense, medical expenses. And so I just was, you know, paying for the low premium and high deductible, one of those plans. And of course, that was ruled to be um, illegal under the (laughs) Affordable Care Act, even though, you know, I liked my plan, but I couldn't keep it. And my premium went up, I'm ballparking here, but it went up about 50%. And so I had just assumed that, oh, that's because it's the, um, you know, the, the standard health benefits and I'm going to have a much lower deductible now with the affordable, with the ACA approved plan with all these benefits and so on, because, you know, now I'm getting a bit and no, my deductible actually went up. So not only did my premium go up by about 50%, my deductible even went up. And I guess the reason was because now if I got pregnant, that was covered, whereas my other plan didn't cover that for me. So it was really shocking that like it didn't. Like even on its own terms, it didn't do what they told people it was going to do. That's right, and I and I think they knew that. Um, the other reason everyone's uh, expense went up, their deductibles and their premiums went up, was uh, the, the pre-existing condition. 
So, yeah, you know, it's just like you wait until your house catches on fire and you pick up the phone and buy, you know, fire insurance for your home. It's the same thing. So everyone's expense went up. I was in the same boat, uh, Bob. My uh, my plan was one that I liked. It was a catastrophic plan. I'd had it for uh, 12 years. I had never filed a claim. I'd paid cash for everything as I went. It was just simply there um, as a you know a catastrophic safety net. And I never filed a claim because I didn't think it was any of their darn business what sort of health care I might be buying for me or my family. And so I chose to just to just purchase care. But of course, it was like your plan declared illegal and couldn't have that plan. Uh, the answer I give to people who say, well, you know, you're just going to go without insurance. You know, what kind of lunatic are you? The, the best answer out there, I think, are these cost-sharing ministries. And, and I belong to Christian healthcare ministries. And, and it, it actually costs me less than the old plan that I liked. Uh, and I frankly think it is, it is more reliable and uh, better coverage, even though it's technically not coverage. You just uh, share other uh, members' expense. So there is a way, uh, there is a, a good way to, to get around this uh, mess. One is to have a, you know, a direct primary care doctor that you pay $70 a month and basically have concierge kind of care uh, because of that. And then have a, a cost-sharing ministry of some kind uh, sitting underneath you. And, and, and then what you wind up paying out of pocket is actually pretty reasonable. Let's take a break, folks, for my interview with Dr. Keith Smith to talk about what else but my book, The Primal Prescription. So this is something that I co-authored with ER doctor Doug McGuff, another medical professional who really knows free market economics. And uh, I got to tell you, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good book. I wanted to, as I often do with these books intended for the general public, I just thought through what's all the great stuff I've read that had me understand and learn more about healthcare from a free market economics perspective over the years. And I tried to put it all in one spot for you. We give a nice history. How did the U.S. get to where it was on the eve of the Affordable Care Act? Why did it seem like the free market had failed in healthcare and health insurance? And then we talk extensively, analyze the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. And uh, then we give solutions, ways that you can break out of that system. And so I think... uh, I still think the book is very relevant, and so I would encourage you to check it out. So you can either just get the book directly, and I'll give a link in the show notes page. This is bobmurphyshow.com slash 37 if you want to find it on Amazon. Or if you want to contribute to The Bob Murphy Show, and you can look at the details if you go through the link, you will see a way that you can get a signed copy of The Primal Prescription. That is at bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Keith Smith. I suppose another loose end, somebody might wonder and say, okay, I I get what you're saying, Dr. Smith, you know, for the run of the mill things, but in the rare case where I do have some, you know, major issue come up, how does that work? Does my direct primary care physician need to have relationships with all these specialists and, and, you know, do they all need to be part of the FMMA or can they be just regular doctors? How does that work? Yeah. And, and fortunately, in the United States, there still are about half of the physicians in the country are independent of these big, uh, vicious price gouging hospital systems. So um, any, any primary care doctor 
is going to have relationships with the specialists that are needed. And you don't need you don't need a specialist to be some hardcore FMMAer. You just need a specialist who's not part of a price gouging hospital. Because when the when the primary care doctor calls the surgeon and or the endocrinologist and says, Hey, I've got a patient I want you to see, that in some ways the the patient is is the consumer and the customer of the surgeon. But in other ways, the primary care doctor is the is the consumer and the, the surgeon is simply a consultant. And they and consultants live and die by whether people seek uh, and buy their services. So, you know, a surgeon that receives referrals from a primary care doctor, he, he has accountability to that primary care doctor or his phone will never ring again uh, from that particular doctor. So it's, an, it's yet another reason that people should seek out these independent primary care doctors because the leverage they have over the, over the specialists uh, and how they treat patients and not just medically, but financially is, is more profound than most people understand, I think. Okay. Look, why don't we switch if you, to um, the perspective of the employer? So I'm, I'm thinking the, the one group now of people listening who might be very intrigued are the employers who up till they heard this, this interview were thinking, ah, oh, yeah, I'm glad Blue Cross is really going to bat for me because I you know, <laughs> periodically, you know, look at their reports and my goodness, you know, I, you know, if, especially if it's a large employer, legally, they have to provide health insurance or even a smaller one that they might just do that because they know that's the way to attract uh, quality employees is to, you know, have quote, good health insurance or health benefits. So, um, and now they're, they're scratching their head and like realizing, wait a minute, maybe it's not like that. So is there something, is there some log jam in terms of like, why wouldn't an employer like maybe look into this and, and, and would they try to switch and encourage their employees to go this route? Or is, I guess that's what I'm getting. Is this something that the individual employee has to do? Or actually, if the employer is on board, does that make this whole system easier? Well, it, um, you're, you're right about who the, who the skeptics are at this point in the interview, that employers are either fully insured, uh, where they, they pay premiums on behalf of the employees, uh, and, and some insurance carrier assumes the risk and pays the claims. They don't, they don't really assume any risk. All they do is front the money and then inflict the damage on the employer the next year with premium increases. So it's just a matter of timing. Um, a good friend of mine, a broker, David Contorno, says uh, insurance companies pay my health bills like my CPA pays my taxes. It's just, mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same thing. The other, the other group of employers are uh, employers that have elected to pay for their employees' health needs out of operating revenue. And, and those, those arrangements are typically referred to as self-funded or self-insured. And then, then they'll buy big catastrophic sort of, you know, Lloyd's of London safety net underneath that, that risk decision. So there are a lot of employers that are, uh, that are fully insured who should be taking the risk of self-funding. And there are a lot of self-funded employers who know about but do not buy from facilities like mine. And the logjam is their consultant. The logjam is the broker or their consultant who advises them on all of these health uh, coverage decisions because the, the healthcare consultant or broker, and many of these are very large uh, national firms that are publicly traded, 
the vast majority of the revenue comes not from the employer that they're ostensibly servicing, but it comes from the big insurance carriers uh, and other vendors whose products they peddle. So the, the insurance broker will make recommendations to an employer, and he's the expert. You know, this is this is the direction you ought to go, and it's not because that's the direction the employer should go. It's the that's what they recommend because that's who's paying them the most to recommend it. So there there is a huge logjam, uh, and and it's the brokers and consultants. And the larger the firm, uh, the larger the brokerage firm, uh, in all likelihood, uh, the more duplicitous they are, uh, receiving all kind of backhanded and undisclosed uh, revenue that, that the employer would never see. Huh, that's very interesting. Um, I, now I know you have spoken on this and we were talking about it before the interview. So it's, it's typical in these sorts of discussions for even insiders like who, who know how the game is played and they end up blaming, you know, big pharma or, you know, the, it's the, it's these crony companies that are involved. And, and yet, you know, you feel that that sometimes misses the, the, the true culprit behind all this. Yeah, I would say that that is one feature of the Free Market Medical Association that that pervades the organization. We we've as a group and as individuals have refused to be distracted by all the criminality of the cronies because we all know Uncle Sam's driving the getaway car. I mean, none of these scams are operational without the favors that have been auctioned off in D.C. and and so when when somebody from government shows up and says, hey, I love this free market medical association, you know, I'm from the government and what now can I do to help you? And there's there's snickers and there's laugh and just ridicule in the room uh, because we we know that government has no role uh, in the operation of a market except to get out of the way and, and to undo everything that they have done. So I, I think that it's very easy to become distracted and, and to find some champion uh, in government uh, who's a hero, you know, who's going to rescue us from all of this, when the real solution is for government to, to stop first doing everything that they're doing and second, to undo everything that they have done. Uh, because any intervention um, is, represents a roadblock between a willing buyer and a willing seller. And there, there are many uh, interventions, and some of them have been well-meaning, but most of them have just been favors auctioned off, I would argue, in D.C. And, and that, process, that process continues. I, I, I think that uh, it, there are examples. Uh, I don't want to be too broad stroke. There are examples where government um, has gotten involved. Uh, and they they got involved in a very interesting way as a buyer. So rather than get involved with all kinds of new mandates, where for instance mandating price transparency, what a, what a disaster! Uh, and we all know where that would lead. That would just lead to a redefinition of price transparency to suit the price gougers. So rather than do that, government, uh, for instance, the county government uh, here in Oklahoma, the largest county is Oklahoma County. And they decided they were going to exert their muscle as a buyer. So we have, they have all of these employees, you know, that, that fix the roads and the water lines and all the stuff they do here in Oklahoma County. And the county government decided they were going to be self-funded, self-insured, number one. And number two, 
if any of their employees would patronize a facility like mine that had their prices posted online, they would pay the entire bill. So they would waive all copay and all deductible. And it's been it's been very interesting because that has been price deflationary uh, in Oklahoma City. They're a large enough buying group that in order not to lose them as customers, uh, many of our competitors have have said, listen, we'll, you know, we'll match whatever pricing we have to in order not to lose this business. So government is a buyer. Uh, to, you know, if, if government has to exist uh, and it wants to do anything that's good, you know, it, it at least could use carrots instead of sticks and you know, using dynamite like they typically do. I would say that pervasive in uh, the membership of Free Market Medical Association is this is this concept that the real culprit uh, in the disaster of uh, the medical delivery system in the United States and the absence of the free market is is Uncle Sam. Yeah, I really like that perspective. And it, it's sort of analogous, um, Tom Woods and I, when we're talking about like the housing bubble and that's the thing, it's, you know... W- it's not to say that the, the things depicted like in the movie, the big short are wrong. Like, yes, the, the ratings agencies were doing stuff and there were certainly many wall street firms that were selling stuff that they knew was, was not very safe. And yet they were getting triple a rating and the, the banks doing the liar loans. But the point was the only reason that whole system lasted so long was because the fed was pumping in money and then everybody got, gets bailed out of that on the other end. And, you know, and then there was all sorts of regulations preventing competition and things like that. So it's, you see a similar thing here. I was recently, Keith, um, at, at Texas Tech, I was on a panel talking about prescription dr- drug prices. And as you can imagine, I was pointing the finger at the FDA for a, a lot of the outrage in that sector. <laughs> and some, and some, and some lady in the back got up and, you know, she was, uh, I think she was a faculty like in the, in the medical sciences department or division. And she, and she was telling me something about how in Japan they had developed these MRI machines that were much better than the ones they use in the U.S. And, and she was trying to use it to show the benefits of government because I guess it was some government-funded you know research. And so when she was done and I said, okay, you know, I, I don't know enough about this. You obviously are the expert on here. So let's just stipulate that those MRI machines really are much better for all the reasons you just said. Why don't they just use them here in the U.S.? And she said, oh, well, the FDA wouldn't let them in. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and not, you know, not realizing the irony of what she just said there. So again, you you do see that. (laughs) That's hilarious. You know, my introduction to the truth about the FDA was a a Robert Higgs uh, video, or I think it was a recording of a talk he gave called The State is Too Dangerous to Exist or something like that. And he, he lines out, you know, what the FDA really is up to and how they work and who controls them and all of the all of the carnage that you would expect from a Higgs video. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know you know this Keith, but just for listeners who might be new to this area. So one of the things that I developed with Doug McGuff, the ER doctor who was a co-author on the problem prescription was in, in, in free market economic circles. Normally the complaint against the FDA is, Oh, they put up all these barriers to entry and all these hurdles. And so um, it just raises the price of new drugs so that, Oh yes, you know, it's, the, the drugs that end up on the market are very safe relative to what would happen in a wild West environment, but they're, they're expensive. It's like, you know, a, a, like a law forcing everyone to drive Cadillacs or better. That wouldn't necessarily be good for the average motorist, even though the people still driving after the dust settle are now in really nice cars, but actually it, it's the worst of both worlds. So yeah, you do have that where 
quote, safe drugs, even though there's no such thing as totally safe, but safe products end up being more expensive than they need to be. But you also get the flip side problem where if the FDA approves something and actually is quite dangerous, the public just says, oh, it must be safe because the government said so. And it can take years for the FDA to reverse itself, even as private organizations realize, no, they should never approve this thing. Um, you know, and the, the Vioxx scandal being one of the, the primary examples of that. Yeah, they, they can't seem to get it right on either side, either preventing bad drugs or, or you know, stopping good ones. It, it seems like it's all wrong. <laughs> well, I, I suppose here, um, do you have any thoughts in terms of like over the next few years? So one thing that I haven't seen barely anybody talk about is the fact that the, my understanding is the Trump administration effectively repealed the Obamacare individual mandate in the, in the sense of like, they're not, the IRS is not going to penalize you for insurance coverage. And you're like, is, is that true? That, that is true. Effectively. Um, it was a, uh, it was an executive order where I believe they just said they were not going to enforce uh, the tax penalties and, and that can be undone uh, with another election. So mm-hmm. um, what, what I know a lot of people are doing are, uh, buying insurance coverage, not unlike uh, what I have, where there's a cost-sharing ministry. Because, because keep in mind that the Affordable Care Act exempted uh, the cost-sharing ministry members. So the cost-sharing ministries are actually mentioned in the Affordable Care Act as uh, membership in one of these organizations uh, protects you from uh, the teeth of the IRS in this law. So the safe play now. Uh, is I believe you know belonging to one of these cost sharing ministries and having some sort of an indemnity plan perhaps on top of that, like uh, Philadelphia American, uh, they're members of the Free Market Medical Association. Uh, they they sell exactly that product. So you know even if even if there's you know another uh, election and you know some new more left wing progressive undone you know just simply you know, issues their own executive order and, and you know, rescinds of Trump's, you'd still be, you would still be in good shape. Having said that, in Vermont, uh, Vermont now requires the purchase of health insurance uh, by every resident of the state that's not covered by a federal plan, and, and cost-sharing ministries were not exempted. So if you live in the state of Vermont now, and you belong to a cost-sharing ministry, you you are in violation of the law if you don't buy instead of or in addition to that coverage from one of the carriers. So while Trump uh, did basically uh, render the law toothless, uh, I, I think it's very unstable. Uh, and, and without some more deep repeal, I think that uh, you always have to keep your eye uh, on, on that because – now this this health lobby is it's it's large. It's bigger than all the other lobbies uh, combined, including defense. And, and so there's a lot of money flying around, and uh, people are people are very influenced, obviously, uh, uh, by by this health lobby. And and it's not not a health lobby that's working for the good of the uh, you know the average patient or consumer. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean those are all great uh, points. And, and yeah, I'm glad you did bring that up because we didn't clarify that earlier that these these uh, health sharing ministries are they're they're legal. In other words, you're part of that, then that that checks the box in terms of you having coverage according to the ACA. But where I was coming from is 
the whole point of the individual mandate was to prevent the death spiral that, oh, if we're going to, you know, make health insurers have to take anybody, even if you have brain cancer, then the only way for that to be financially feasible is if you make everybody buy health insurance, like the healthy people got to buy it too. So now if technically they're not being forced to buy it, isn't that going to spell the death of conventional large insurance companies? And, and I think that month to month, some of these large insurance carriers actually have uh, shown some losses. Uh, and and that's, that's exactly right. With the mandate gone, uh, but the pre-existing condition clause still there, uh, that, that's bad for them. They still receive huge subsidies, though, from the federal mm-hmm. government. And, and the one thing I've learned is when a hospital administrator or an insurance executive says that they're losing money and they're poor mouthing it, in all likelihood, that means they're making so much money, even they are embarrassed. So it, it's hard. It's hard to even know what's true. Right. Right. Well, I, what's funny on this issue, just to permit my own little uh, complaint about Paul Krugman, who you may know, I, I'm not the world's biggest fan of. He, um, you know, for years, you know, with the, in the lead up to the ACA and then even afterward, Krugman kept making this basic point that the ACA is like a three legged stool. And if you're going to have universal coverage, then you have to have the essential health benefits and you got to have the individual mandate because otherwise the whole thing falls apart. And so stop whining, you know, or, you know, those Republicans come along and they promise that they're going to give you all the goodies, but none of the, none of the broccoli don't believe them. Cause you know, they don't know the first thing about healthcare economics. And then once Trump did that, you would expect Krugman to say, Oh, the end is near. And instead he said, ah, Nancy Pelosi did such a good job building the ACA. It can even withstand Trump's attempts to sabotage it. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable how, you know, how his whole shtick went out the window the moment it was politically necessary. Um, but, but it, ironically, I agree with the earlier Krugman that I thought, yeah, given the other elements of the ACA, the individual mandate was necessary. Otherwise, you know, it's just, you get this crazy situation where, people who are sick can sign up for coverage and you got to cover them and the other people have the option. How, how in the long run is that going to work? Is the premiums just going to keep rising? So they cover their costs from the last cycle and that's going to make more and more healthy people say, why am I, why am I paying for this? This is crazy. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what government does though. You know, it's a, there's a flawed premise and they make a bad decision and all they can do at that point is make even worse decisions uh, subsequently. <laughs> they won't go back. We'll go back to the premise. Well, what I really like about what you're doing here with the FMMA, Keith, is, you know, you you know, intellectually, you can sit there and explain to the, you know, the curious listener, here's what went wrong. Here's a, you know, a brief history of the government intervention. And the, the only long-term solution would be, of course, a return to more free market policies. But in the meantime, here's what you can do with your, you know, company or your family to, to sort of secede from this system and, and, you know, kind of stand aside as the whole thing perhaps might come crashing down in the next couple of decades. Um, is, is that, am I putting words in your mouth or is, is that one way you're looking at it? No, that's exactly right. I use the word secession all the time to characterize exactly what we are promoting uh, because the, you know, m- most people fail to realize over half of the medical services purchased in the United States right now are socialized. And, and the only way to, the only way to really act in a some sort of sort of fiduciary way that's in your own interest is to unplug uh, from that system and refuse to subsidize that the whole disaster. So it really is. It, I think it is properly thought of as secession, and 
And it's a disaster and it should be addressed. But in the meantime, there's some very easy, practical things that can be done. Self-funding by employers. Uh, continue to listen to any advice that uh, an employer receives from a consultant with a huge amount of skepticism. Um, and and having even said that, there is a there is a movement uh, in the United States amongst the healthcare consultants and brokers that has figured out that there is a market for honesty. And, and some of that was on display uh, at the Free Market Medical Association as well. So and the system is a mess, but I think the, the real message I want people to receive is there is a huge, very justifiable reason for optimism uh, because markets are really, really showing people in this country their power and what they can do. And it's very healthy. And and the, the folks that have been saying for years, you know, this cannot be done, the help the free market and those principles cannot apply to this industry because there's so much uncertainty. They're being proven wrong every day. And and it, it's a wonderful thing to see. Well, on that optimistic note, I think that's probably a good point to wrap up this interview. So thank you so much for your time, Dr. Keith Smith, and for all the work you've been doing. I'm sure the listeners uh, are excited by what you're doing, and many of them may want to go take action. Well, appreciate appreciate your having me, and uh, for all of all of the work that you do, Bob, I'm I'm a big fan. <laughs> thanks so much. You're making me blush. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks everyone for listening, and we'll catch you next time. You've just finished another episode of the Laura Murphy Show. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to do your part in building the 10%. The Laura Murphy Show is provided with the understanding that the staff and contributors of lauramurphy.com are not here and engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult your own professional tax, legal, or financial advisor.